A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are doing oral history today and we have got an amazing guest on with us today. We are speaking with Richard Easton, who is the son of Roger Easton, who was a physicist and a scientist who designed the GPS and who also worked on the space program. Welcome. Good to be here. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Williamsburg, Virginia, about four miles from the historic district, and I'm doing pretty well during the sheltering in place. I've got a much nicer uh, environment than I know a lot of the people who are stuck in a flat in London. So all things considered, I'm, I'm thankful. We're here to talk about your amazing father. So let's start off with a couple of questions. So Roger Easton, he worked on the Naval Research Lab from 1943 to 1980. When did he start working on the space program? He started in 1952. They had a rocket sounding program called Project Viking, not to be confused with the later NASA program that did a soft landing on Mars. Uh, Project Viking was doing upper atmospheric research and my father joined the rocket sound area uh, in, in 52. The first launch he saw of a rocket wasn't supposed to be a launch. In June of 52, they were doing what was supposed to be a test firing of Viking 8 at White Sands. And the contractor, Martin, changed the way it was bolted down. And Dad said the the new method should have worked, but there was so much vibration from the rocket that the bolts came loose and it took off during what was supposed to be a test firing. Wow. Uh, Dad said, poor Milt Rosen, who was the head of Viking and who I met in 2009, Milt looked about as upset as a man ever could be because uh, it was a complete loss. You know, they, they didn't have it configured for launch. Uh, but fortunately, um, Martin gave them the ne- next rocket at cost and the program survived. But it was, it was a bad day for pil- poor Milt Rosen. Oh my God, do you know what? I don't know how I would have felt myself standing there in absolute shock. But he, um, he ended up playing a role uh, for Project Vanguard, didn't he, in April 1955? In 1950, there was a meeting at Jim Van Allen's house and they decided to push the International Geophysical Year. They'd had polar years, 50 years apart, but 1957-58 was going to be a solar max. So, so they wanted to have an international 
geophysical year. And both the US and the USSR decided that they would launch a satellite. It was actually 18 months from July 57 through December 58. So there was a competition in the US to launch the first satellite. All three services, Army, Navy, Air Force, put forth proposals, but the Air Force was working intensely on the first American ICBM, the Atlas. So their proposal was not very serious. So we had Milt Rosen, who you just heard about Project Viking. He was putting forth a proposal for the Navy at the Naval Research Lab. And my father helped him write it. Um, and on the Army side, there was Werner von Braun, who people must know from the V2 and his uh, Operation Paperclip coming to the US. So the Navy um, proposal was much more sophisticated in terms of tracking the satellite, the mini track system, which my father helped devise, and, and uh, the technology on the satellite itself. And they went out over Von Braun. Um, Milt said, uh, they have a rocket and we don't. So, so the Navy was actually surprised that they won. But from the perspective of the IGY, the Navy proposal was better. And so they started working on Project Vanguard. And then on October 4th, 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik 1. A month later, they launched Sputnik 2 with a dog on board, Leica. And the pressure on the White House got greater and greater. You know, why did the Russians beat us? So December 6th, 1957, there was the first test live of all three stages of Vanguard. And the White House under pressure said this would launch the first American satellite, which startled and frightened the Vanguard people because first test of all three stages live, they thought it had a remote chance of working. And you've probably seen videos of Flopnik getting about four feet off the pad and blowing up on national TV. My father had designed the little grapefruit satellite on TV3, Test Vehicle 3, and uh, it, survived, it survived the fireball. Um, they brought it to my dad, asked what he should do, and he said, well, I guess bring it back. So. He bought a, a ticket for it on the commercial flight back to Washington, put it in its little wood box. It sat in our house overnight, and you can now see it at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. And there's a picture of my father and Marty Votaw, who worked with him on TV3, examining it in 2008 on the 50th anniversary of the successful launch of its sister satellite, Vanguard 1, which was the fourth satellite to reach orbit, the first one to carry solar cells. The uh, solar-powered transmitter worked for six years, whereas battery-powered, in the case of Sputniks 1 and 2, it was a week or two. And the first American satellite, Explorer 1, the batteries worked for four months. So the solar power worked very well. And uh, I have a picture of myself. Dad used to tinker with Vanguard One on our dining room table. 
obviously before it's launched. And I have a picture of myself with my brother and three sisters arranged around it on our picnic table. It looks like a late winter scene in the Washington, D.C. area. So it was probably a week or two before it was launched on March 17th, 1958. So I've been within a foot of the oldest satellite that's still up there. That's absolutely, I've got to say, that's absolutely incredible. As I mentioned, my dad worked on Minitrack, which tracked Sputnik and Vanguard. Um, one more story about Sputnik. Uh, Marty Votaw, who I just mentioned, worked with my father on both Minitrack and Sputnik. And then he worked on the first ELINT satellite grab, 1960. So this was even before Corona and photography. This was to detect Soviet radars. Um, Marty said on October 2nd, 1957, a memo went out to NRL saying there would be no more paid overtime for Vanguard. So Marty thought, whew, we're going to get some rest. So October 4th, Marty's at home having dinner with company and the phone rings and it's my father saying the soviets have launched sputnik marty said good that proves it can be done and dad said you don't understand we got to track it because vanguard and and mini track were set up to track satellites transmitting 108 megahertz which is what the igy standard was well was, tra was transmitting at 24 and 40 megahertz. So they needed to modify Minitrack to detect signals at those frequencies. Um, so, so Dad said, we got to track it. And Marty said, can I finish dinner first? And Dad said, <laughs> yes, but come down right afterwards. And they spent three days working, you know, catching little catnaps, modifying Minitrack so it could track Sputnik 1. So, so the question is, how do you go from that to GPS? In February 1958, Dad realized Minitrack depended on detecting a signal transmitted from a satellite. And Soviets would soon launch spy satellites, which would be quiet most of the time. So he needed a system that could detect a quiet, non-transmitting satellite. And he came up with the idea for the Naval Space Surveillance System, which had three powerful transmitters along 33 degrees north, uh, basically from um, San Diego to Georgia, including a very powerful transmitter in Lake Kickapoo, Texas. Um, so he started working on that. That, uh, I know he got the Distinguished Civilian Medal from the Secretary of the Navy. There was a lot to, to do about that. And, um, and then in 1964, he, it's, it's a, a convoluted origins, but I'll give you the later part. In September 64, he was at the King Ranch in Southern Texas, trying to figure out they were building a new stations in southern Texas to try to be able to detect the orbit of a satellite in one pass. So 
space surveillance in general would predict the orbit based on several orbits. So they, they gradually refine their estimate. But there was uh, um, a call to, to make it more precise. And with the two lines of the space fence, he needed to synchronize the time between them. And by then they had cesium atomic clocks. Uh, they could drive them from one station to the other, but the cesium clock would drift during the time in which it was driven. They could also send a signal over the horizon, but that was noisy. They had a new hydrogen maser devised in 1960, but they couldn't afford one of those. So then he thought, gee, I'll just put the clocks in a satellite and it can synchronize the time between the, the different space surveillance stations all at once. And he thought, well, gee, that will also make a very good navigation system. He called his system Timation for time navigation. So it worked identical to how GPS worked. Uh, if you know where the satellite is and what time the, the signal is sent from the satellite and what time you receive it, you know, light travels 186,000 miles per second or 300,000 kilometers per second. So if it takes a tenth of a second for the signal to go from the satellite to the receiver, you're 18,600 miles from the satellite. And with four satellites in sight, you can get your three-dimensional position and your time synchronization. So he was thinking all about all that in 1964. He launched his first Timation satellite in 67, uh, the second in 69, that, that operated on two frequencies, so that corrected for the bending of radio waves in the ionosphere. And then in 1973, the Department of Defense started a unified program. In fact, it was today, April 17th, 1973, a memo went out that there would, they didn't have the term GPS yet, but the Defense Navigation Satellite System, there'd be a joint program office with representatives from three ar armed services led by the Air Force. And uh, the Air Force had a system called 621B. They unified the two systems and the result was GPS. Can I ask, what is so special about Timations 3 and 4? Because we've spoken about the earlier ones, but these ones were launched in 1974 and 77? Yes. 3 and 4 um, put the first atomic clocks into orbit. So 3, or NTS-1 as it was renamed, put the first rubidium atomic clock. And, and 2, NTS-2 and 77, put forth the first cesium atomic clock. Early on, they thought cesiums would be better than rubidiums for GPS, and um, it's turned out to be the other way around. I was talking two years ago at the Vanguard 160th celebration with Pete Wilhelm. Uh, Pete designed all four Timation satellites. He also worked on GRAB, the, the the first ULINT satellite. Uh, Pete worked at NRL for 55 years. So you think, gee, my dad worked there at 37 years. He was a piker compared to Pete. But at any rate, Pete said 
I don't really understand why uh, Rubidians ended up being better. I mean, one, one difference today versus 1973 or 74 and 77 is we have a lot more ground stations synchronizing the clocks and GPS. Originally, they wanted the ground stations to be either in the continental U.S. or secure U.S. territories. But with the end of the Cold War, that restriction was relaxed, and we have a ground station in Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. So, so we ha the system is much more developed, and, and they're able to keep the clocks much more closely synchronized than was the case when it was originally devised. So, so again, NTS 1 and 2, uh, having space-hardened atomic clocks is a critical aspect of GPS, and there were major steps along the way to that. Can I, can I ask, how do the Navy and the AF stories differ about Labor Day in 73 and the creation of the GPS? This is one of the big controversies. We like uh, Brad controversy. Yes. Brad Parkinson, the first head of the GPS Joint Program Office, said over Labor Day 1973, he and 12 others from the JPO uh, flew to Washington, D.C. because he was on the West Coast, and most of the members of the JPO were on the West Coast. Um, and they had their Lonely Halls Conference at the Pentagon over Labor Day 1973, where they devised GPS. The Navy story is in addition to this Lonely Halls meeting, they had a meeting at the motel on Spring Hill Road in Virginia, where my father and Captain David Holmes, who I, I met, um, talked with Parkinson, and he said 621B isn't going to work. It's too expensive. It's got all sorts of problems. And David Holmes said, well, why don't you take timation? And I'm pretty sure I was there after that meeting because I remember driving with my mother to a restaurant, to a hotel in Virginia. I'd never been before. Um, and it happened to be the week before my freshman year in college. So, you know, memories are a little sharper than they are in general. <laughs> um, the daughter of David Holmes found a slide presentation which he made, which mentioned the, the meeting. And one of my dad's colleagues, Ron Beards, uh, he's still with us. I exchange emails with Ron all the time. He said, oh, the one, the... The, the meeting at the motel on Spring Hill Road, that was one of several meetings we had that weekend, but it was the critical one. Also, I have on my website, gpsdeclassified.com, a document from September 21st, 1973, and it mentions a document from September 4th, so the just after Lonely Halls. I've never been able to find the September 4th one, but the September 21st one describes the three scenarios which were arrived at at Lonely Halls. They all look like 621B. And then there's suddenly post that a scenario 4 and 4A, which look a lot more like timation and GPS. Uh, so 
so the earliest document I have says that, uh, that it supports the Navy's perspective on what happened. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's interesting. We do we do love a bit of a conspiracy theory um, and controversy on here, so... Um, the question is, who's got it right, really, at the end of the day? Are we, we, well, we... And, and, and Parkinson's story doesn't make sense. And you've got he documents talks... to prove it. Yes. Well, Air Force historian agrees with me on this point. Okay, he talks about how constrained Pentagon budgets were. And yet... He claims that he and 12 other members of the JPO flew from California to Washington to only meet among themselves. Uh, why, why, if that was the purpose of Lonely Halls, why didn't they just get a hotel room somewhere in California as opposed to 12 people flying cross country to, to have an meet, internal only meeting? The meeting in Washington makes a lot more sense if they were also going to meet with people from the Naval Research Lab, which is in Washington. Um, so, so my, my account, I say, fits the evidence, it fits the time period, and, and again, People don't have to believe me. They can look at the September 21st memo. If you know a little bit about what 621B was and Timation was, you can very clearly say Lonely Halls did not result in GPS. Parkinson's claims for what was decided on that, that weekend are not supported by the evidence. The Navy story is supported by the evidence. So... Sounds a bit like a glory hunter to me. He wants to take the credit for something he didn't do. He, he did significant things towards GPS, but when you look at his errors, they are all uh, making his role more prominent. No, I understand. I understand. But your father, he actually wins uh, the national, not wins, but he, he gets given the National Medal of Technology in 2006. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened at the meeting? Well, that was an exciting day. They, they have the National Medal of Science and the National Medal of Technology, which are awarded the same day. So it's a White House ceremony where, um, you know, President Bush, um, they had a meeting before the, the ceremony itself. And, uh, 
My, my father kidded George Bush that he was POTUS, you know, president of the United States. So he said when, they, when he gave him the map, he's, uh, President Bush said to my father, hi, I'm POTUS. So, so he remembered that. But it, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting um, ceremony. Um, you can see my bald spot on C-SPAN because <laughs> the camera pans around my, my backside at one point in the ceremony. Um, but it was a, a wonderful day. Alas, the media will only in George Lucas's company getting the uh, National Medal of Technology. So, so uh, but my father was introduced to George Lucas as the real man behind Star Wars. So, uh, so, uh, and I have a couple of uh, nephews who are aspiring actors. So, uh, so they greatly enjoyed being able to meet George Lucas. Oh, wow, that's quite that's quite a great. You win a medal and you get to meet George Lucas all in one day. I mean, who, who what evening, else can you do? Yeah, that evening at the banquet. At that point, I was starting work on my book, and the other NRL people were sicking me. Go, go talk to George Lucas. When will you ever see him again? So I went over, and he was very gracious. I told him about writing my book and asked him about writing a book versus a newspaper versus an article. And he said, oh, write the book. You'll have much more editorial control. And, you know, he did it very well, but I thought to myself, I need a platform. I can't go to publishers and say, I've never written anything about GS and I want you to publish a book I'm working on. They're not going to compare. They're not going to care who I'm son of. So I, I started that May. I published my first article in PS, which uh, got a lot of attention, and I published a number of articles before uh, we went to a publisher and and got uh, approval to go ahead with the book. So uh, so if you're George Lucas, I'm sure publishers are eager to uh to to publish whatever you write uh if you're an obscure son of you've you you need a platform first all right before we wrap up uh you've given us two names of two people here and i just want to talk about who they were before before we do finish and you well, the first one is charlie uh if i'm going to pronounce this right charlie bossert yes can you tell us a bit more about him and who he was and how does he fit into all of this? Charlie Bossert designed the Atlas, the first IC, American ICBM. Uh, going back to um, when I was talking about the competition to launch the first American satellite, I mentioned that the Air Force was working very hard on the Atlas. But in 1962, we spent the summer in Santa Barbara uh, they had a program to try to, to devise an SDI-type program, Strategic Defense Initiative, basically missiles uh, to intercept Soviet ICBMs. And um, we were in California for a couple months that summer. For me, it was, it was a lot of fun. I got to see Disneyland. I got to see Knott's Berry Farm. We went to the Seattle World's Fair. 
but also Charlie Bossert was on the, the West Coast and he came by to visit us a couple times. Um, I recently went to his daughter-in-law's birthday celebration in San Francisco. So as you might think, the, uh, the space fraternity was pretty small in the 1960s. And, you know, these people knew each other. And um, two years later, his older son, Yan, was in Washington for the, the summer and got evicted by his apartment. And he moved, he and Katie moved in with us for a couple of weeks. So, you know, the scientists become friends and their children become friends. So, uh, so Charlie was a major figure in American space history. I mean, the Atlas and its um, various developments have launched a lot of the interplanetary probes like the Mariners. So even today, there's the Atlas V. So, uh, so it's been very significant for the space program. And he, uh, I know historian Dwayne Day has said Charlie Bossert had a greater effect on the American space program than Werner von Braun. So, uh, but again, if you're, if you're working for the Air Force, you get less publicity than if you're working for NASA since obviously human spacecraft, space flight is more sexy. <laughs> so tell us who is Captain, and you're gonna have to correct me here, uh, is it Weems? Yes, PBH Philip Van Horn Weems. He was a major figure in airplane navigation. Uh, he taught Charles Lindbergh celestial navigation. He sent to Amelia Earhart in May of 57, I'm sorry, May of 37. So just shortly before she took off on her round the world trip where she disappeared, you know, trying to find Howland Island, he sent her a letter saying she really needed to come for a couple of weeks of intense training, uh, things like Morse code. Uh, but he got a very gracious response from her husband saying there wasn't enough time. And Fred Noonan, who was her navigator, was trained by Weems. Uh, there was a newspaper article saying the only navigator who was ever lost at sea, trained by Weems, was Fred Noonan. And it appears that Amelia Earhart uh, didn't listen to him on a couple critical matters. So uh, Weems knew everybody. He knew Orville Wright. And he was a good friend of ours in the 1960s. He contacted my father after learning about Project Vanguard, and we'd go regularly to his house in Annapolis. And I just remember him as a very exuberant man. He was trying to get my, my older brother. Uh, he was very much into physical fitness in spite of being 80 years old. And he was trying to get my older brother uh, to, to do swimming. And um, again, one of the major figures in navigation history. And my father and Weems both won the Magellanic Premium from the American Philosophical Society. So they, so they also have that in common. Can I ask if, uh, what else your father won is in terms of awards? Oh, let's see. He won 
and I am not going to be able to pronounce this. He won an award from the Emir of Kuwait. This was shortly before his death in 2013. Uh, my brother flew out to Kuwait and had lots of interesting pictures. Um, he instituted navigation. He won an award called the Thorough Award. Um, the Navy named two engineering awards after my father. Wow. But the, the um, National Medal of Technology, I mean, it's, I was talking to Kenneth Arrow, uh, who, who won a, a science award at the same ceremony, and he won the Nobel Prize for economics. And I asked him how these two ceremonies uh, compared, and he said, well, I think... I know some of the Nobel Prizes are from Norway and some are from Sweden, so I might mess this up, but I think that one was from Sweden. And he said, the King of Sweden has a lot more time on his hands than the president of the US. So, so uh, he, had, he had more time to interact with the King of Sweden. Oh, wow. That's impressive. I just, I would love for you just to plug your book at the end of this. So tell us really quickly uh, the title of your book and what it's about. The uh, book is GPS Declassified, From Smart Bombs to Smartphones, and it retraces the whole history of GPS. It goes through the controversy in, in much more depth than I can do here, but it, it talks about um, the history of navigation early space navigation systems, GPS, and its implications. I mean, when we were writing the book, for the U.S. GDP, it was estimated that GPS was adding about $100 billion a year, and now they're estimating about a billion a day, so $365 billion. So it's, it and its sister systems, they're called DNSS, Global Navigation Satellite Systems, they're critical for the worldwide infrastructure. It's been called the first global utility. And, um, but, but there are dangers to GPS, whether human hacking or a bad solar storm, a Carrington event. And uh, you know, it's, it's important that we keep these systems functioning well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it greatly. Join us a little bit later on because the time is nigh. Uh, we've been waiting for it. You've been waiting for it. Bobfest is here, our uh, celebration of everything Band of Brothers. Uh, it kicks off today with a... Sh uh, with a show about the history behind the series, where we are joined by James Holland and our Bobfest coordinator, without whom none of this would have been possible, Paul Woodage from Normandy. And we are also joined by John Orlov for a fascinating insight in that program as to how he wrote episodes two and episodes nine. So that's the D-Day episode and the Holocaust episode. And he's just full of information about how the history ended up on the screen and why it ended up on the screen the way it did. And then tomorrow, we've got the Easy Kids. That is a touching and brilliant interview with the descendants of the guys that have been immortalized in the program. And then it's the big one. May even have to put it out in two parts on the same day because we have so much. We have interviewed now 
20 or 21 actors for our cast reunion. I'm still trying to edit it. My head is exploding. I think I deserve an Oscar at the end of it. It's not like there's going to be much competition next year. Um, But join us because it's going to be unforgettable and there's stuff in there that you will never have heard. Um, It turns out that waiting 20 years and then going back and talking to them, the timing is brilliant. So don't miss any of that. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.